Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to help farmers expand your capital, whether social, intellectual, or economic. Investing on and off farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. Having diversity, integrating livestock, not using synthetic pesticides, herbicides, etc., and not tilling up the ground. There's so much life going on under the ground that every time you till it up, it has to like reform. When you think of all the life down there, um, I don't want to disturb it. You know, there may be a need periodically, but it's like, why do we have that need? How do we learn so that we don't have that need again to open it up? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversation. Today, we have Benina Montez on the show. She was born and raised on the farm. Um, Benina always felt a deep connection in agriculture, actively participating in 4-H, FFA, a Cal Poly grad with BS in ag business. She returned to manage the family's um, almond acres, uh, transitioning it to fully organic by 2015. Now they have the entire operation um, certified regenerative, and it's pretty exciting. Benina, excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the invite. Happy to be here today. Absolutely. I was browsing online like I do often and found your stuff and was super excited because your the family, the Burroughs family farm that you operate on is is really cool. Love what you guys are doing and the story is cool. So if you don't mind, like if you dive into it, what what's the story? Um well I was born and raised here on our farm. We had dairy, beef, and almonds. Um my dad also was the third generation to be a dairyman. And um, just, I always wanted to come back. I always saw what he was doing. And I said, I in sixth grade, I said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to like take over your job, which I didn't necessarily know what that was, but um, that's what I Sounded said. Sounded cool. Yeah. Um, so when I came home from Cal Poly, uh, we had about 650 acres of almonds. At the time, my dad and his brother were still partners in the dairy and beef cattle. And as my generation started coming back in, the family made the decision that it would be better to split ways. So when that happened, my parents were super generous. And um, because they had gone through so many splits, they didn't want myself and my siblings to have to do that. So my parents were generous and I got to um, become a partner in just the almond portion, which was really awesome, but it didn't have a bunch of diversity. It was just almonds. And so coming from a diversified background, I wanted to look at strategies that would have less risk. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about organic, but we weren't quite ready for that um, for a couple of years. And so in 2006, we started the transition with our first block because by then we had found a consultant that we felt comfortable working with and thought, now's the time, let's go ahead and start this. And so over the next few years, we just kept adding more and transitioning. And then I got married and um, about a year later got pregnant. And I just didn't want to have to um, 
have the chemicals on the ranch and be responsible for that. So that's when we decided to go ahead and do the whole farm. And so we were doing the organic thing and I love it. It was great. But my parents started talking about regenerative ag and I thought, geez, one more, one more certification, one more thing to have to do. Yep. What is this? And the, um, Ecdiasis Foundation started doing research on comparing conventional farming of almonds to the regenerative practices. And when the first report came out and I started seeing six times better water penetration, way more insects, way more birds, just way more life and still having, you know, profit, have being profitable. I thought we need to jump on this ASAP. Why didn't I actually listen to my parents when they started talking about it? And so I just started going to conferences, listening to other podcasts, and just trying to soak up as much information as I could and talking to Dr. Lundgren from the Ecdiasis Foundation to see, see like, whoa, okay, how can we get our soil organic matter to increase even more? What should we do? And so the topic of integrating livestock and having more diversity on the farm is a big component of that. And the opportunity arose that we could um, purchase about 750 head of pregnant sheep. So use. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't necessarily think that I would be doing a lot of that uh, work, but we went ahead and, and got them coming and one lambed on the truck and then they didn't start lambing for like six weeks. And um, I just loved it. It was actually really fun and cool. And I hadn't done animal agriculture for more than 20 years. I mean, growing up, I had worked with the beef cattle and the dairy and showed and did all that, but I hadn't had to have the seven days a week on and like just be involved in that all the time. And so um, totally changed my uh, immediate family's life. But my daughter decided, Hey, I want to be a sheep farmer. And so, you know, she's only like six or something, but it's just fun. They, they like it too. And so now we're just on this journey and um, I'm super passionate about it. I'm really excited about it. We live in the Central Valley where there are water issues, air issues. And so the regenerative movement just makes logical and economic sense. And so I want to just keep sharing the word about it. Dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. So in your, in the perfect world, Benita, if you had a perfect farm in the Central Valley, what would that farm look like, knowing what you know now with regenerative practices? I just envision like Eden, you know, like Mm. there's butterflies and birds and there's things in bloom and everybody's happy. And it's just, you know, is everyone wearing loincloths or do we, are we wearing something else? (laughs) Uh, yeah, hemp, hemp, uh, hemp clothes, hemp clothes. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool, cool. I, I mean, that's, ex- that's extreme, but we're out here in the rolling hills. We're about an hour and a half from Yosemite. And, um, you know, we had, a, growing up, there was a big area of milkweed, which is what the monarch butterflies like to eat on. And I remember seeing the chrysalises and, you know, just, it was pretty amazing. Well, we haven't really had that for years and we had a little patch of, milkweed just come up voluntarily and I thought well that's pretty cool and so we marked it off with caution tape and then my mom planted a little hedgerow 
which had some milkweed in it. And so between those two sites, we saw, they found, I don't know, four or five caterpillars and oh, that's pretty cool. This year we put Mm -hmm. in a whole big line and, you know, now we've got, we we're seeing monarchs like every other week. Um, You know, that's pretty cool when they're decreasing in numbers every year. Pretty significantly, right? Say that again. Pretty significantly, right? Right. Well, there's no habitat for them, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to see that population keep growing. Um, It takes four cycles in a year before they jet south. Um, And so, like, that's one thing that's fun. So I just want to see diversity. I want to see, like, productiveness. I would, I feel like most farmers are like, okay, well, I'm going to farm corn and soybeans and this is my return per acre just based off of those two things. Um, Or out here, like we farm almonds and how many pounds per acre can I get off of that one acre? And what I find exciting is, yes, that's part of it, but what else can we grow on that same acre? Like now we're grazing sheep. So now we also have pounds of lamb on those acres. And I feel like we need to look just for more opportunities. As we have less water, as things become more expensive, those can just be a challenge. But if we look and say, what opportunities can we come from that? What can we grow meat birds? Can we do other things on that same land? Well, now the return per acre looks better and we're improving soil health. We're also improving human health because we're making a good product without a bunch of, um, you know, unnecessary chemicals that starts really becoming exciting. Mm-hmm. And the snowball know, effect. Exactly. Plus, I mean, more and more the food system is just becoming more condensed. So by doing this, our local food system can really benefit from that and our economies, which you've seen as an example with, um, is it white Oak? I believe. Yeah. Will with Will. Mm. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. What is, you have an almond farm. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you have cover crops and now you have lambs. So what does the rotation look like? Well, here that's even that's part of our journey. So when we started, I was like, oh, these sheep can take the place of our mowers, like our tractor and our mower. We run through and have to mow it so many times. And we like a cover crop and we like the soil covered. But historically for almonds, you have to make sure they have a clean bare floor and so we spend all this time growing this crop and then, you know, then we spend months making sure that it's pretty clean so that we can shake the trees. The nuts land on the floor, they dry for seven to 10 days and they get swept into a windrow, picked up and, and taken to the elevator. Um, by this change in our strategies, I guess, now we want to leave the soil covered much longer. If we're going through all this effort, how do we keep that going? And so there's a new harvester called a Toll, T-O-L, Inc. And um, they have a catch frame system Mm. that still allows us to put them in a windrow 
in the orchard floor so that the sun's energy can dry them because the almond industry is not set up for drying like walnuts and pistachios and those industries. Um, And so now we can leave the soil covered on like half of the orchard floor. So I'm hoping that our soil health will just keep increasing because we're able to do that. And meanwhile, we're saving a ton of money by not having to make the floor clean. So it just seems like a win-win all the way around. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping more farmers will start doing this as well. Mm-hmm. Is it a pain managing the livestock in between? I mean, some people could say it's a pain, but I think of it as an opportunity. Like they're yeah. out there grazing. I, I So going back to the to the sheep, originally I was thinking of them as these mobile lawnmowers that I didn't have to put fuel into. And (laughs) now I want them to still be a piece of the puzzle, but um, they're probably only going to be in there a couple times a year instead of like half of the year. So they're just going to, they're just a piece of our toolkit to have the diversity with their pee and poop and saliva. Also they're a product, but they don't need to be in there all the time because we want to make sure that our soil health keeps improving. And if they overgraze, that can be a negative also. Mm-hmm. Are you guys testing the soil in di- different spots to figure out, you know, where the lamb should go next or is it all by feel? So it's, we are testing, but it also is limited because young almond trees they must taste really good to sheep because they will, they'll um, nibble on them and they could even kill them. Mm. So normally we're just grazing in more mature orchards. Now in the walnuts, they don't bother the trees. So in our young walnuts, we're able to graze in there. But I also think that as we improve our soil and have a more nutrient dense seed source for them, that they would be less likely then to also graze on the trees. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you have lambs, almonds, walnuts. Do you still have cows on your operation as well? My siblings do. They still have some, um, okay. but not, um, I personally don't have any. Now, my husband and I, we do have um, about 5,000 organic pastured chickens that graze out here also. 5,000, that seems like a lot of chickens. It's super tiny in the chicken poultry world. Like most people have like hundreds of thousands in barns. Um, but we but those took, are barns, like not what you're doing, right? Right. Um, we took cotton trailers. The cotton industry changed how they harvested. So there was a surplus of, of these cotton trailers that just were sitting unused. And we got those and turned them into what I call like an egg mobile. So they're two layers of nest boxes. They have waters on either side. They have roosts inside. So the chickens, you know, come out in the morning, go drink, eat, look around, forage. Then they come in and lay their egg and then they go back out until the evening when they come in and roost. So it's pretty cool. That is cool. It reminds me, I've had Zach Smith on with the stock cropper. I'm not sure if you've you've heard of that, but it sounds like a very similar um, concept. 
I'm not familiar, but I want to listen to that podcast now. Yeah, it's he is essentially doing that same thing, but having cows in in one unit mm-hmm. essentially have lambs like chickens and cows like in the same unit so when it's moving across the field they're still getting fed but the manure is dropping on the ground and so it's so you get multiple animals on the same acre at the same time almost that's awesome yeah super interesting um so with the with the chickens do you do you see any any benefit? Well, there's lots of benefits, but depending on, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what is like the, the decision point where you're figuring out like, how do I know when to put lambs on this part of this almond acre? Or is it time to put the chickens on it? Is there a system that you're using or, or can you walk us through your, your thought process there? Well, again, the sheep can only go in certain areas and the chickens, because the coops are, are higher, they don't fit down the mature orchard rows. We can put them into the young orchards, which we have done. Um, but most of the time, they're just on our flat irrigated pasture and they get moved through there. Now, when the dairy was going, um, dairy cows would go down there and, and they would, you know, graze together the chickens and the cows. Um, but for the most part, it's just on timing. Like we can't have the sheep out during harvest because the almonds go on the ground. So for food safety, we don't, we don't have those crossing at the same time. But now as soon as I'm done with harvest, I'll send the sheep in to clean up. Then we'll plant our cover crop and the sheep will come off until like mid to mid March to mid April. And so then they'll graze at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. So it depends on when you're harvesting, what time of year, right? the chickens, you can't even have them in the orchards because the size doesn't make sense. So you're just having them on irrigated pasture. And the young trees, they can go in the young trees. They just have to be moved in a, in the right amount of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Earlier you mentioned Dr. Lunger. I, I think it was. Can you give us a little bit inside of, of who Dr. Lunger is and, and what he's up to? So he, um, so it's Dr. Jonathan Lundgren and he started the Exorcist Foundation and, um, he has the thousand farm initiative right now. And so he is trying to promote regenerative farming in like each of the crop industries. So I don't remember which one he first started with, but almonds were towards the front, but he's doing apples and wine grapes and he's moving into citrus but he's just been traveling the United States and Canada and he's taking samples and comparing conventional to regenerative practices. And he's, um, you know, check, checking on water penetration, water holding capacity. They check out the bird populations, the insect populations. They're just looking at all of the comparisons that they can do. Um, and so I'm really stoked to work with him and, and learn from him. So are you, is the Burroughs Family Farm part of this initiative that he's spearheaded? Yeah, we're one of his, one of the farms. Okay, cool. So he comes in and is doing samples and basically gathering all of this data. Mm-hmm. It, how far along in the process is he? So they just complete, so basically, um, 
initially it was like a senior project from a student at East CSU East Bay. And that student did the first three year study on some almond farms here. And because of the positivity that that report showed, they redid the study again with even more farms. And so this is the end of the third year of the repeat study. So there is already a report on his website that you can um, check out. And then this year in February, when we have our third annual Regenerative Almond Farm Day, he will present on the, you know, the latest information that they've compiled. Okay. Curious cat over here. When is the third annual? We will have that that? towards the end of February. The specific day is not picked yet, but, um, but we'll, we will be doing it. Okay. Sounds good. I am getting my feelers out there because I need to do a bit of traveling. So that is good to know selfishly. If any of the other listeners want to check that out, I'm sure they're invited, but third annual sounds like it's going pretty well. Otherwise you wouldn't have a third. Yeah, there's definitely interest, I think, um, especially as just resources get harder and harder. I mean, we're going to be regulated on how much water we can use to produce crops. And so to me, it just, again, it makes so much sense. How do we, how do we get water to penetrate better? How do we get, you know, this winter we had so much rain, right, in California. And driving around, you could see it just sitting where the where the ground was bare. It was just sitting. It wasn't like percolating in at all. Um, it was. It's very apparent that keeping the soil covered is super important here in the Central Valley, where we're getting hot days in the summer. If it's not covered, the ground temp. You know, nothing's going to be alive in the top couple inches because it's so hot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our five principles are keeping the soil covered, having diversity, integrating livestock, not using synthetic pesticides, herbicides, etc., and not tilling up the ground. There's so much life going on under the ground that every time you till it up, it has to like reform. When you think of all the life down there. Um, I don't want to disturb it. You know, there may be a need periodically, but it's like, why do we have that need? How do we learn so that we don't have that need again to open it up? And I want more and more people to start following those principles. First thing, keep it covered. You drive by and there's orchards. You can't even find like a green speck out there because it's all nuked. Um, And I think that um, the Central Valley can really start seeing drastic changes if we just left the soil covered, you know, even just half of the year. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend and we were going back and forth on if we see an increase in the interest in regenerative ag practices, small to medium sized farms, introducing these new concepts. Well, New, I mean, define that however you want out right. there. Um, and he was saying he didn't believe that, that that there's enough interest to make an impact. What are your thoughts on that? We're not going to be able to buy our way out of lack of water, 
lack of resources. Like, if the earth is dying, we can't buy our way out of that. Look, there's not a plan B at this point. So we have to protect our resources now as a mom with the kid, you know, kids and maybe eventually grandkids. Like I would like them to have something to, for their future. Right. So mm-hmm. I think if people aren't interested, they're just thinking very, very short term because the research has already showed us that times are changing, but there is hope in regenerative farming, kiss the ground, the movie, as well as common ground, which is launching right now nationwide. Both of those show really positive outcomes. If we would just adopt these, I mean, there's other farmers and ranchers all over the planet that are using these strategies and it's working. Their soil health is great. The nutrient density of the products they're creating is fabulous and their pocketbooks also reflect it. So I think that we just need to continue to talk to each other, be open to learning and trying different things. And um, I'm, I'm excited for the future with this type of farming. And I hope other people will join in on that. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Benina, because I was, I was arguing with him and I was, I was saying, no, I see the exact opposite. People are wanting to do, do the next thing. They see the benefits of implementing these, these new, I mean, systems for lack of a better word, but they're all natural systems. There are, it's something that has been here for thousands of years and we're just really bringing it back. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting when you listen to Rick Clark and uh, John Kemp and um, a lot of the experts, you know, Gabe Brown, you hear them talking and it's like, this just sounds like magic. It's like the earth was created with a really cool plan that works. And us as humans have just wrecked it. And so, yeah, you said, is it new or not new? Well, it's really not new, but it is fresh right now for people that want to embrace, embrace it. I feel like in with, with um, my generation or maybe even younger farmers that they are open to trying a lot of these things, but it's the generation, you know, it's their parents that are like, I don't know about trying that, you know, and there's, they don't have the power to be able to say, well, I really want to do this cover crop or whatever it is, you know, so they have to wait. And Mm -hmm. I, I hope that this, you know, 50 to 75 year old generation right now, it, it, I I wish they would start changing before it got to the sickness. I mean, some of these people talk about why they started farming this way. And it's because, you know, somebody in their family got cancer or they themselves got cancer or something was going on that made them pause and self-reflect and figure out, hey, there has to be a different way. Yeah, there is a different way. Do you, with the consolidation happening in agriculture right now do you think that these larger 
ag operations that are buying up the little guys are, do you think that they are integrating these regenerative ag practices into their operations or are they doing rip and reapply what we're used to the last 30 years? I think there's both because there's companies that, you know, need to offset what's going on with their practices. So they're looking for ag companies that can help them offset that. And so people are being somewhat pushed to implement some of these um, regen practices. I think that there are always going to be the, how can I line my pockets that much faster companies, which that's their prerogative. Um, But I do think that there are larger companies that see the benefit because it's going to help their bottom line too. So in I the think long term, what, what's hilarious about that is they they're so short term focused that they'll actually just run themselves out of business most likely if they don't switch. Right. Just from a bottom line perspective, because I mean you said it earlier, you your it makes dollars and cents literally and figuratively. And then when you think about the new reg- regulations around water usage, and then you quoted six six times water penetration, that is huge. Mm-hmm. So, so for every one percent increase in soil organic matter, that's another twenty thousand gallons of water, you know, that your soil can hold. So every time we have a big storm, we want to be able to capture everything. I like um, the analogy of how much rain did you get? And we'll talk about, well, how much was caught in the rain gauge, right? Oh, we got an inch of water, which is great. But if you only get 10 or 20% that actually soaks into your land, then you didn't get an inch of water, right? And so mm-hmm. I want to be able to say that when it rains, that we got we got everything. It doesn't really matter what, what the number on the gauge says. I want to be able to say, yes, our farm soaked up, you know, all of it. When it rains, it soaks. Exactly, but it doesn't suck. It's a, it's soak. a, it's a... D- not sucking, right? But we prefer it to pour. But if it pours, we want it sinking in. Exactly. Yes. Benina, we have talked about a, quite a few things. Um, what is one thing on your mind that you'd like to get out to? listeners, farmers, um, aspiring farmers, you know, those thinking about doing a regenerative agriculture, and then maybe those who are listening, who are thinking about doing some succession planning, retiring farmers, you know, what's one thing that you'd like to leave us with today? There's more than one way to go on your journey. And your journey will probably take you many directions. It's not just a straight line. I mean, the learning curve for me, or just the path that we've been on is always evolving. Um, Be open-minded, take time, but also jump in and see what happens. They always say, we'll just start with one, one little piece, which is great. But like for us in the almond industry, there's not a lot of people doing this. So if I keep waiting for somebody else to do it so that I don't have any risk, the industry is not going to keep moving forward, right? If we just wait for researchers or for funders to do it so that there's no risk. So 
I guess I would say, you know, don't be afraid to try and explore options. Definitely call people up. I mean, farmers always want to share what they've got going on. So I think do that, travel, um, research. And um, I hope for the older generation that they'll just have faith in, in their offspring, you know, that they have raised them to be able to be strategic and look at opportunities as well. I love it. Benina, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time today. Of course, love what you're doing over there at Burroughs Family Farm in the Central Valley. Your almonds and your walnuts and your sheep. Um, keep on doing what you're doing. Maybe we'll come see you at the end of February. That would be really awesome. And for those of you that are not in California, our almonds and almond butter and olive oil are all available on Amazon for purchase. So we can share the regenerative love and nutrient-dense products um, throughout the U.S. Well, there you go. Maybe we should also throw those in, show those links in the show notes. That would be awesome. And thanks so much for having me. And we welcome, you know, people that want to come out and learn and see what we're doing. Sounds great, Benina. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Casey. Absolutely. To all listeners, hope you found today, found value in today's episode and look forward to another one next week. See ya.